0: Hey, Dave here. Before launching into this episode, I wanted to share something that's been bouncing around in my brain recently. Along with producing this podcast, I'm also a fan of listening to other podcasts, and recently Nick Vanderkalk from Love & Radio used the term arrested adolescence to describe people from the millennial generation. This may well be true, but I wanted to borrow this expression because it so aptly describes most of the people I know from the world of street theater. Through the use of some sort of skill, a liberal helping of comedy, and an innate internal desire to play, street performers tap into a sort of youthful alchemy that allows us to convert our passion into energy, create joy for our audiences, and amazingly generate a cash flow more or less out of thin air. This anything-is-possible-so-let's-put-on-a-show mentality is not the study-hard, find-a-job-and-eventually-retire scenario that we're taught in school. Rather, it's a leap-and-the-net-will-appear story that so many are discouraged from ever attempting. By leaping, by playing, and by choosing to never fully grow up, we may well have found the fountain of youth. So here's to the power of Arrested Adolescence and the incredible impact it has on the world. Own it. Be it and share it with your audience every time you step out on the pitch. All right, let's get to it.
1: I decided I wanted to go do some street shows in Washington Square Park. And I go over there, and I was like, oh man, these guys just don't want to let me in. And so I was talking to Master Lee. And uh, Master Lee says, Johnny says, okay, this is what you got to do. He says, go. He says, queue up. He says, go now. And do your show right now. And then I did a show, and... There was a guy who heckled me the whole show. And I come off and William says, you know what just happened? I said, yeah, that show sucked. I had a fucking heckler to deal with that show. He says, you know why? He says, "Uh, because Albert bought him a 40. And he told him to heckle you the whole show. He says, you know what you got to do now? He says, you got to wait till Albert goes on. And then you got to buy yourself a bum or take the same guy and offer him two cold 40s. (laughs) Welcome to Washington Square, people.
2: That's
1: brilliant. <laughs> the rules have changed. Not really. <laughs> you, you want to work this pitch? Good luck.
0: Welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a podcast dedicated to creating a living oral history about street performing and some of the crazy characters who populate this world. I'm David Aiken, the Checkerboard Guy, your host for this growing collection of interviews. We all remember seeing certain performers that left an impact on us at certain times in our careers. Johnny Fox certainly had this effect on me in 1985 when I saw him on the Pearl Street Mall in Boulder, Colorado, and it would appear that he had a similar impact on Guy Collins a couple of years later on the other side of the world. How? Well, I'd like to hand things over to Guy so he can give you the backstory and set things up before diving into this interview.
2: I first saw Johnny Fox swallowing his swords on the Paul Daniels TV show back in 1988. It was a great performance, really mesmerising and one I've never forgotten. So you can imagine how proud I was to share a stage with him some 25 years later at the Maryland Renaissance Festival. Johnny and I sat backstage in his old tour bus and had a little chat. Now, I know a lot of you scoff at Renaissance Festivals, and to be fair, there are Renaissance Festivals, and then there are crappy Ren Fairs. Well... The Maryland Renaissance Festival is arguably the very best in the world and each year it attracts over 350,000 people over nine weekends. As well as Johnny and myself, past and present acts include Robert Nelson, The Butterfly Man, Gazzo, Hilby, Jonathan Burns, Martin Ewan, Glenn Singer and even Penn and Teller. Johnny Fox is on his 35th season performing at this fair, and he continues to be a massive hit with the punters. Like many old-time performers, Johnny has a reputation for a bit of drama. Well, in actual fact, in the flesh, he is one of the kindest and soft-hearted people I know, and he's always happy to give young performers advice when they need it. So, enjoy the recording, and I'll see you all on the street. There's nothing like seeing a man blowing a conch. It's the way we start the show. certainly is. Key West tradition. So we're um, sitting here in Johnny Fox's 1957
1: GMC pd 4104 <laughs> vintage bus with Isabel the Wonder Dog with her blue eye, litter of one, born on the night of Hurricane Isabel in New York City at the Freakatorium. It's That's a wildlife, folks.
2: It is a wildlife, particularly as we have Hurricane Joaquin bearing down on us at the moment as we speak. So, Johnny Fox, you are a legend. I think I can safely say that you're a legend amongst uh, the street performing world and the magic world in general. Oh, well, I never think of myself that way, but I guess, you know,
1: after doing it for so long, it becomes like, holy shit, man,
2: this guy's been doing it that long? Yeah. Is that's what qualifies for legend? Wow, well, no, you're fantastic to watch as well. You're a fantastic performer. I remember the first time I ever saw you would have been in 1989. And I actually saw you on TV on the Paul Daniels magic show in England.
1: Oh, Paul Daniels! Paul Daniels, yes. Oh, yeah. It was great doing that show. Uh huh. I never forget. I was doing a show in Boulder one day, and we saw these two little boys. And they were they were screaming, "Mummy, mummy! We saw him on the telly in Dublin." <laughs> I said, "I've never been to Dublin. We saw you on the telly in Dublin." Right. I was like. Oh, it was Paul Daniels' show. And I was thinking, wow, man, how amazing. I've performed on television in all of Great Britain because of Paul Daniels. Thank you very much, Mr. Paul Daniels. And Ali Bongo
2: was there. and Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that was the show to be on. I saw you, I think you were the first variety act I saw on there that ever made an impression and then Frank Olivier afterwards as well. And Air Jazz as well. And. Raspini Brothers? The Raspini, Raspini Brothers? I never saw the Raspini Brothers on it. No, I remember. I remember Air Jazz made it. Air Jazz <laughs> was great. Yeah. I remember you distinctively.
1: And. Uh, the reason they wanted me for that was because they had this promo shot of me right. sitting on a stool, standing up with the stool stuck to my bum <laughs> right. and a sword down my throat. And they said. That's great. Can you do that trick for the Paul Daniels show? I said, Of course. Yes. I said, Well, we'll hire you just for that. <laughs> you swallow a sword and stand up, and a, and a stool stuck to your bum, and then you pull a sword, and the stool falls back. Is you know, one of those harebrained ideas that come after smoking. We used to smoke weed and. I can't
2: come imagine up Paul crazy. Daniel ever smoking weed.
1: No, I probably not. <laughs> Maybe nowadays he has. Um, but no, I mean, that idea came years before that, you know, sitting around what else can you do as a sword swallow i used to think okay well, what can i do as a sword swallow that hasn't been done or how can i how can i come up with some unique material then you know i was thinking oh, wouldn't that be fun you know swallow a sword yeah. and stand up and have a have a stool stuck to my backside and, yeah no, do no, no,
2: that's funny that that's funny stuff i mean
1: i i was a- working on it with a, as a card effect too where i'd yeah. take a deck of cards and i put the cards down on the seat and i'd sit on the cards and then swallow a sword and then, stand up and they'd stuff in my butt and I'd pull it and the sword would drop and then as I'd come up there'd be a card on the end of the sword right fold it around and then I'd un- reveal the card and there was what, from your mouth so I you sat me the, the card the, yeah, swallowed yeah.
2: the sword and then the card came out of your mouth with the sword
1: yeah so it's in and it's out but the important thing is to make sure that people are relaxed and that when it goes down and comes back up their eyes don't water don't make people uncomfortable right when people make uncomfortable. It screws it all up. I mean, I see these pictures nowadays of people, they say, International Sword Swallowers Day. They all go to Ripley's, believe it or not, on yes. the Sword Swallowers Day to promote sword swallow, which is a load of dog dung. But <laughs> it's about getting gigs for one person, I think, is what the whole thing is about. But okay. I, anyways, uh, I look at the photos, and sometimes I see people that are struggling. Their bottom lip is quivering, uh, and their eyes are glassing up. And it's yes. like... Well, these people aren't sword swallowers. They're not professional sword swallowers. They're people that are just going out there shoving a piece of steel down their throat. They hardly ever do it. Right. If they did it long enough, they wouldn't struggle with it. No. Yeah. And there's a lot of wannabes out there that go out there. They're not ready to perform it, and they go out there, and they perform it. It's like, you know, you see a juggler going out there. A the guy wants to get on a good pitch and do a show on a good pitch, and you look and you go this guy hasn't done his homework, this guy's not he's dropping balls left and right, he doesn't have any lines for when he drops the balls
2: he's, uh, I mean it's valuable time that other buskers are like, well, yeah, but you do have to learn as well, I mean, I mean, there you is do, but, they, that's not, but you in should the right learn place. yeah, I mean, there is a big argument to where and when you should learn as well, you definitely have to try it out in public Yeah, I mean, it. I do believe there's a time and a place for everybody, I do think yeah, I mean, if you're talking about the West Piazza and Covent Garden on a Saturday afternoon, which is prime time, and people are basically making their living from that, then maybe you shouldn't really be experimenting with a that's brand new show that's that you've ever I mean. done before. At the same time, I think, you know, pictures should be for everybody as well. But For sure. You know, there is a limit. But we were talking about Soul Yes. So,
1: the way sword swallowing came about for me, I and mean, the first thing I ever swallowed was spaghetti after reading uh, about Houdini swallowing a key on a string. Right. Uh, I was at the table with my family, and we were having spaghetti, and I swallowed a piece of spaghetti without biting on it, and I uh, hid one end of it underneath my tongue, and I looked across the table at my brother, and I said, Look in my mouth. There's nothing in my mouth, right? Watch this. And I proceeded to pull a piece of cooked spaghetti out of my throat. My, Dad looked at me and said, "You're excused. Leave the table. Go to your room. No dessert." (laughs) But that was my first experience of my when I when I remember what was the first thing I ever swallowed and brought back up, and it was that spaghetti. I forgot all about that. And then when I was uh, in high school, maybe around 16, I was drinking a lot of alcohol with some friends, some you know Seagram Seven whiskey and. Canadian club, I don't know, and uh, drank too much and my friend said, you need to go stick your finger down your throat, get some of the alcohol out of your system. So I went over to the bushes and I stuck my finger down my throat and I remembered I could relax with my finger back there. I was just so hammered that I was like, wow, I can feel everything back there and I'm not gagging. Right. right? And so I, I tried to pull my stomach in, suck my stomach in at the same time and then I was able to vomit and get it out. But I remembered those things and then years later, I was about 25, and I was in Boulder, Colorado, and I had already, at that point, been uh, working doing magic in Florida and had done some shows up in
2: Aspen, Colorado. Okay, what street shows? Very little. Right.
1: I'll tell you about my first street show in a little bit. Okay. About yeah, it was a killer of a show.
2: Right. Yeah. Right. Okay.
1: Okay. <laughs> okay. But um, I'm in Boulder, and I blew a fireball. Okay. Because I used to gather the crowd with fire right. and the winds and boulder, they call them Chinooks, it shifted and the, blew the fireball right back in my face. Okay. And I covered my head, I put a bandana over where the fire was, but my face was actually on fire. And I, right. The bandana caught on fire, I put it down, I smothered it by pulling my shirt up over my face. And I asked a guy in the audience if anybody had anything cool or cold or liquid that I could put on my face because I was determined to finish the show. Yeah, and a guy—I'll never forget—a guy gave me a low and brow beer, and I poured it over my face, half of it, and I drank the other half. And,
2: and that was a good idea.
1: No, oh, no, I should have stopped I'm it right there. I'm talking about the beer. Because after I looked at myself, and after the show was over, I went and looked at myself, and there was skin hanging off of two, oh. di- two different spots. That I had second-degree burns on my face. Right. So someone told me to go. Introduced myself to their uh, naturopathic doctor, a guy named Charlie Cropley, who's there in Boulder, still in Boulder. Yeah. And he told me, he said, uh, you know, you might want to rethink fire eating because you're putting uh, chemicals in your mouth and those mucous membranes there that absorb those chemicals and it will go to your liver and uh, it's not really a good idea.
2: You never see an old fire eater, do you?
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. That was was another
1: (laughs) one someone told me. Someone said, you ever see an old fire eater? (laughs)
2: No. <laughs> I said, "Thank you, thank
1: you very much, but Cellini told me one time he says he says, "Yeah, he was watching these two old Jewish men uh, right they're walking down uh, the avenue over by the Metropolitan Museum of Art, yeah. and he says these' two old Jewish guys. they look across the street, one of them sees a the guy eating fire, and the other one looks at the other and he says, You know Harry, when you 're hungry, you 'll eat anything." <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> so anyway uh. I decided, okay, I'm not going to eat so much fire. But okay, I want to so, do something oh, more with the b- danger. Before we get to that, so you say you were about 25 then? Yep. Um, so, uh, and this was in Boulder? Yep. And you have done shows in Aspen, so and these so were, had, these and were street had, shows. And
1: then I had done a uh, restaurant performing in Florida. Right. Uh, that's what? where I first met Cellini. Right. He was the lead singer of a band. He had a band called Rainbow Magic, and that was probably around 74. Okay. 73, 74. All
2: right. So, you met Chilean in around about 1973, 1974 down in Florida? Yes. And then this was like a Florida, couple of years Florida. later? And then, excuse me, I'm going to
1: correct it. This is around 1977, 78. Right. Uh, I was in Aspen, and then I left with this guy, Steve Spill, who owns yeah. a club in uh, Santa Monica called Magicopolis. Right. Uh, he's had that for quite a while. His father was the manager of the Magic Castle, Sandy Spillman. Really? Bob Sheets was the owner of the club, and Steve was uh, Bob's partner. They would do duo shows. So they were a real strong influence on me in the beginning, too. I mean, I mean that's when we were getting stoned. And there was all kinds of illicit stuff going on in Aspen at the time. Yeah. Belushi was there. Uh, Steve Martin. There was all these celebrities that were in Aspen back then. Yeah. And... Everybody was inspired to come up with new material. Well, how crazy can we be? And, you know, what other what crazy harebrained ideas can we come up with? And then Spill and I took off and we went to Florida. Mm-hmm. And we stopped by and we visited Cellini while we were there. And on the way back, we were on our way back, we were going to go to California out to the Magic Castle, and we did. But we were stopping and doing... We decided we wanted to sell magic tricks... There was a guy, a famous guy in magic, who went by the name of One Arm McDonald. Right. He only had one hand. Uh. He actually had one hand missing, and he would sell magic tricks. There's a trick, famous trick, called McDonald's Hundred Dollar Aces. Right. And the reason it's called Hundred Dollar Aces is because he would offer that trick for sale. And so we were inspired by that, and we wanted to go into bars and uh, do some bar magic in our travels. We had already been doing that in Aspen, and then we were going to offer to sell some of these tricks okay and I was thinking okay well what can I sell for a hundred dollars and I was swallowing cigarettes and bringing them back up and I I remember selling that a couple times and getting a hundred (laughs) bucks for that actually did and then spill was selling the cigarette through the quarter he had traded the rights to one of his books to a guy named Paul Diamond in Miami part of the trade was cash and part was paid in these cigarette through quarter gimmick quarters that he was selling for a hundred bucks. He would show the trick. Right. And then we made it to San Antonio, Texas, where the Alamo is.
2: Yeah, my auntie lived there.
1: And I was in a park, uh-huh. and I was doing my first street show, and I was doing Cups and Balls, and I had an audience of Mexicans, almost all Mexicans, watching me. And I had already got the cups loaded, and I was about ready to reveal the cups, and I heard someone shout in Mexican, meet up, meet up. and the whole crowd ran past me. I didn't even get to show them the fruit under the cups. Right, And I'm thinking, shit, what the heck just happened? I have nobody to pass the hat to. The crowd has now ran about 200 feet away from me in front of this building. What happened was, A guy jumped out of a window and committed suicide. My first street show. That was my first street show with Steve Spill. In fact, he just wrote a book called I Lie for Money, and he recounted that whole street show. It's in this book that he just put out called I Lie for Money. And
2: that was your first street show? That was my
1: first street show with Spill.
2: (laughs) Oh, that's awful. There
1: has to be a human sacrifice if you want to be a legend, folks. Well, yeah. And then uh, we went out to California, hung out in California for a little while, did some more bar magic out there, and kept working on the streets stuff. And then back up to Aspen to work again. And Aspen has a mall. We were street performing on the mall in Aspen. Okay. And then down to Boulder every once in a while, about a four-hour drive. But there was a lot of friends that we had in Boulder. There was a group of guys called the Phone Family Circus yeah. that some of the people from Air Jazz were part of. Barrett Felker was part of it. The guy named Sam Kent had a magic shop called the Wizard on the Pearl Street Mall.
2: Okay. How old was the Pearl Street Mall back then? I
1: mean, it was just a few years old at that right, time. Yeah, because yeah. the Pearl Street Mall, I think, opened in, like, 79,
2: 78, 79. Yeah. Well, you th- I mean, I thought we were talking about 1978.
1: Yeah, I think it may that. have been 80 that I really started to get going. Maybe it was 78. Yeah, it could have been 78, 78. Right, okay. Pearl Street Mall got started, and Shiner was down there. 79, I was definitely working on the Pearl Street Mall. Yeah. And that was my first renaissance fair, um, yeah. was in uh, Chicago, Magical Mystical Michael, he was street performing there in Boulder, and uh, he had a, a funky old bread truck that he had made into his camper, and he was going on the road, and he had been performing with the Karamazov Brothers, and oh, yeah. traveling around the country, and Tom Noddy, and going out and doing the Oregon Country Fair, right. and uh, he was an East Coast boy, and was, so we got along good, he was from the Bronx. I, was, okay. I grew up in Hartford in New York City as a kid. in uh,
2: Hartford, Connecticut. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and when I got out of high school in 71, yes. I went straight to California. Right. My brother was living on a houseboat in Sausalito, and I would go in and out of the city, and sometimes I'd go down to Ghirardelli Square, and I was really uh, intrigued with street performing when I saw it done in San Francisco.
2: Right, okay, and who was it you saw there? It was
1: the Human Jukebox Right. A. Whitney Brown.
2: I've heard of the human jukebox. Whitney Brown. A. A. Whitney
1: Whitney Brown. Brown. And he'd say, someday I hope to be the Whitney Brown. Okay. (laughs) He was on Saturday Night Live. He did Saturday Night Live. He was a character on there. He was pretty well established on Saturday Night Live for several seasons. Polaris was a magician who used to work there.
2: And this is all Union Square?
1: Fisherman's Wharf. Yeah. That's what it was. Robert Shields was doing some pantomiming then. And then he got picked up by Doug Henning to do a bunch of television stuff. And Mm -hmm. he had uh, his wife. He was married to Yarnell. Shields and Yarnell it became. And then they got big and then they were touring colleges. They were doing really good touring colleges. Then I saw a street performing in 74 in New Orleans. I was there visiting uh, uh, Mardi Gras, Yeah, my girlfriend from Florida. We took a trip over and I saw Bounce and Cyrus right. doing a show at Jack's Brewery and Bounce had his zigzag Unicycle and Cyrus was up on his unicycle playing the accordion. Okay, and they had a huge monster crowd, right? And that really got me when I saw those guys playing to that size crowd at Jack's Brewery and they cleaned up, they were doing several shows. And I met Love 22 there, too. Oh, Love 22. Love 22. I'll never forget it. He was wearing a jersey, blue with big yellow numbers, number 22, of course. Right. And he had a, looked like a checkerboard that had on one side of it the ABC code. And on the other side, there was a bumper sticker that said, Catch 22. And he took a piece of paper that he had Xeroxed a whole bunch of things that he was handing out to people and he was selling his twenty two dollar bills of course. Yes. And he was telling me about how everything added up to twenty two.
2: Fantastic.
1: And I remember I mean yeah. Spun crazy. my head around yeah, yeah. completely. Yeah.
2: Completely. I think people who've never seen Love Twenty Two have missed out really on something that is just completely unique and just
1: Unbelievable. Christ. Yeah. <laughs> so he was there with Bounce and Cyrus. They all lived in Key West and they came to yeah, New Orleans yeah. for Mardi Gras. Right, and and I went back to then I went back to waiting tables in Florida, and um,
2: when did you meet Cellini? When did you first start doing the cups and balls? So because when you say talk about your so, first street show in San Antonio, that
1: was my first street show. Right. I met Cellini in seventy three, I think it was and He taught
2: you the cups and balls. He
1: taught me cups and balls first in his apartment, just sitting down on the floor. He showed me a little few moves with cups and balls. And he loaded the cups with potatoes, and I realized what could be done with sleight of hand and cups and balls. And then I had some uh, kind of uh, Middle Eastern get-up, and I got asked to go on and do this television show. So I did a television show doing cups and balls around 73, 74, in Tampa. Right. And then Cellini, like I say, he was a singer of a band, and he was amazing as a singer he used to perm his hair he had really curly hair white suits with fringe like two foot long fringes hanging from his arms but he could sing ballads and really get women emotional really oh amazing amazing it's so sad that that there's no footage we've got to find footage the band was called rainbow magic Uh for people to see cellini work a crowd when he was doing his magic back then, it's uh, it was it was so amazing. what
2: did he just do his singing, or did he do he did, singing and magic? He did
1: the first set was singing, yeah, and then he did a cool. set of magic. Really, and he did the cups and balls. He did Slidini's knotted uh, silks where they jump from glass to glass. The sympathetic knots, right? He did uh, the production of silks.
2: Yeah,
1: he produced a couple doves and a big stack of fish bowls. I remember.
2: How does that work? I mean, how can you like be singing all of a sudden and then you just go and do a magic? The stage
1: was set. Uh, right. From the second set, the stage was set with two tables out yeah. there. And he would have the band play live music for him and then he would do the rings and then they'd stop the music and he'd say, at this point, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to hand all the rings out for examination. Some magicians, they'll hand out the rings, but they never hand out all the rings. Here they are, every single one of the rings. Examine them to your heart's content. I'll take him back when you're satisfied, and he'd go right back into the linking of the rings. It was a Slydini's uh, handling and method for doing it. Right. Really beautiful. Yeah. He'd, he'd also do the balls over the head. Yeah, He was one of Slidini's favorite students. There's a couple books that Slidini gave Cellini, like a full 8x10 in one of the pages. He had four or five students that he did it for. Right. He gave Slidini about $3,500 over the course of about Five years when he was studying from him in New York City Shalini was also from Hartford Connecticut he worked at a magic shop Parkville Novelty it was a magic shop on Park Street in Hartford and I used to go in there as a kid I don't remember him but me I may have seen him behind the counter but he would take the train to New York City and study with Slidini Slidini would ask him for 500 bucks every so often okay over the years he gave him 3,500 bucks and then at one point Slidini took him to an Italian tailor and he had him fitted for these Italian suits had the suits made and then Slidini hand embroidered all this elaborate embroidery almost like a Toreador yeah style and he gave Jim all the uh, the props that he needed okay he gave him the two suits and he gave him all his money back really he said, it's time for you to go out and do this magic that I taught you.
2: I thought wonderful.
1: He never told me that until years and years later. But when I first saw Cellini perform in Florida, because yeah. I wanted to meet him that night that I saw him first, and my girlfriend I was with, she was hammered, drunk. I had to get her home right. and take advantage of her. <laughs> As a joke, I, am not, I would not touch a drunk woman. Oh. No, no, no. She was, oh, she was a very pretty girl. Bonnie. But I threw her in her bed and just left her there. Right. Yeah. Oh, man. I, I was so disappointed that I didn't get to meet Cellini. So, I went uh, uh-huh. to a meeting of magicians, Society of American Magicians, the SAM. They were, it was the first time I'd ever been to one of these meetings. And I went in there and there was some people demonstrating magic at the end and I saw him again. Okay. And his name at that time he was going by was Jim Codell. Right. His real name is Dick Sullivan. Shalini's real name is Dick Sullivan. So, I went over to introduce him after seeing him do the coins through the table. I saw him do coins through the table there at that meeting. Yeah. And after he did it for these the magicians, That's I was blown Dini away. As well. It's a Slidini routine. Yeah. And I didn't know who Slidini was, but I had seen Slidini on the Dick Cavett show well, and didn't remember his name. I remember there was this old guy and he was doing some of the cleanest sleight of hand that I'd ever seen. And I asked him, I said, where did you learn that? I've seen somebody do that before this old Italian guy goes yeah that was my teacher I said really I said man you're so lucky to have a teacher like that I said "Uh, is there any chance that that I could take lessons from him too he says I'll ask him I'll introduce you to him he says if you're into it he says let me see your work and let me see if you're ready for it so I started buying Slidini books and practicing on Slidini uh, close up sitting down material in Florida when I was waiting tables I'd practice in the daytime and I'd go to work at night and then I met Slidini by phone. Cellini called him up on the phone. He says, I have a student who would like to study with you. He says, Here, i pass the phone over to him. He said, Let me know a couple weeks before you come to New York if I'm going to be around. Sure, you come over and uh, I'll see if I can help you. And uh, he would book me to come over his place on West 45th Street.
2: Right.
1: Really amazing little studio that he had. And uh, I'd stay up till like 2 o'clock in the morning with Slidini. He'd Say you always come over. He'd be my last student. You come over and we could stay and hang out and talk and yeah. Great. But yeah, he knew I was really serious. Like knew I was serious about wanting to learn. He he gave me a lot of good pointers. And then Cellini left Florida. He went to Chicago after he broke up with his girlfriend. Mm. <sighs> but he was in Chicago and he was single and he called me in uh, Colorado and he said what are you doing and I was living in Denver at the time going back and forth to Boulder and I was working in restaurants but uh, Chilini came out and uh, we'd go up to Boulder and we would street perform the first shows he ever did on the street he did with me and it was called the Jimbo Jonzo Show <laughs> <laughs> and then we went and we worked at the Colorado Renaissance Festival I think that was probably uh, 1979
2: right okay that So was, you,
1: that was his first street shows so
2: his first street shows were actually on Pearl Street
1: His first street shows were on Pearl Street, yeah.
2: Right, okay. Yeah. And what were they like?
1: I would do a trick, he would do a trick, I'd do something, he'd do something.
2: um, So you did a double act?
1: Yeah. And then... uh, And was it cups and balls?
2: Always cups and balls?
1: I was just doing cups and balls. He would do rings. Right. um, Do a rope trick. I was doing some cigarettes. He did some stuff with cigarettes. I was doing some close-up stuff with coins. Yeah. Gathering a crowd. And we were just feeling it out in the beginning in uh, how to structure our street
2: shows. So how were your hats?
1: Hats back then, yeah. Maybe make like twenty, twenty-five bucks a hat.
2: Twenty-five bucks a hat, yeah. Right. Yeah. Between the two of I you, mean, how many shows a day yeah, we were did ha- you do? Yeah, we
1: we're pretty happy with that. If we could yeah, make 20, twenty, twenty-five a hat, twenty, twenty-five a hat, we'd probably go out and do uh, anywhere between five and ten shows a day. Right. Yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Just keep doing another one. Let's do another one. Let's do another one. Yeah. Do another one. Finish right. it. Do another one. Yeah. yeah. Finish it. Set up. Look for the crowds to start. You know, wait for some people walking by and. Hey, can I show you something? Hey, check this out. and Back up a little bit. And, uh, right. You guys over there, hey, guys, come in. And we are just gathering a crowd and just learning how to form a crowd and work them.
2: Yeah, and so how long did you do that? Was it just one season?
1: We did that one season, and we bought a bus. We were thinking that we were going to travel around in a bus, and was, we found this old bus that this church was selling, and we were going to travel around Colorado and see if there were some, some festivals, and as soon as uh, we got the bus the light went on and jim said he was like i gotta have my own bus
2: right <laughs> and
1: so he got his own bus and then he decided you know what uh, this isn't the place i want to be i want to go to the east coast and so he took his bus and he drove it to new jersey and he parked it in some little campground in new jersey and then he started going over to manhattan yeah and working the financial district of manhattan he'd work in the daytime right he worked it really hard in the beginning. he definitely put his time in and uh, yeah. he'd worked the daytime in the financial district then at nighttime he'd go up to the Schubert alley malcross I, I alley is. it's uh, the theater district right. so when the shows are the Broadway shows are out for the intermission break,
2: yeah. you
1: catch the people on the intermission as soon as they're coming out. If you can do two shows on intermission, quick shows yeah. before they have to go back in the theater right and then at the end when everybody's waiting for a cab. It's like the worst time to get a cab in New York City is when the theater is getting out. There's people waiting around. And it's like while you're waiting for the cab, hey, check this out. You're not going to get a cab for a while, but do a quick five minute show.
2: Right.
1: Pass hat. He did New York for a couple years, and then he started going over to Europe right. and Switzerland. And Well, yeah, I mean, I went know to that Zur- he worked bit about Zurich, Zurich a lot. He yeah. loved Zurich. Yeah. And I went over there and I met him a couple times in uh, Zurich, and he showed me where to perform there. And uh, Right. Yeah um Washington Square Park was another place people used to work back then.
2: Well, yeah, I mean I I would have just assumed that that was, would have been where he'd gone. I've never heard of anybody actually just going to the financial district and doing shows. Right and then there.
1: Philippe Petit was working there was a little place called Father Demo Square Philippe right. Petit used to work there and he had a couple of little secret places that he would work around the city where nobody messed with them and need then there was the bottom of the steps of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. If you go there okay. around 4:30, when everybody's getting out, you can get it, like uh, two or three good shows in there with quite good-sized crowds. Jeff Sheridan was working over in uh, on the west side of uh, Central Park, over by the Sir Walter Scott uh, statue.
2: Okay. So who do you, who's your best memory for street filming?
1: Artistically, Philippe Petit. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. What Our, did he do? F- he came out and he was in a f- all dressed in black with a black leather hat. And he showed up on his unicycle. He put the unicycle down. He had a small box. He opened up the box. It was uh, long, about 12 inches long by about 4 inches square all the way around. And he opened up this box and he took out a, a hammer, a string, a piece of chalk with a nail on it. And he took the nail over and he took the hammer and everything he did, he did it so artistically. He put it down there, he tapped the uh, nail into the ground, hit it one time. He knew right where to put it, I guess. He stretched the string out, put the string right where he wanted it, put the box off to the side. And he stood up and he walked around surveying the crowd, looking at the crowd. And then he kicked up the unicycle without touching it with his hands. He kicked it up. And he's riding on the unicycle, He goes around in a circle, and he bends down and picks up the chalk and the string, and he starts riding around in a circle, and then he bends over while riding around in a circle, holding the chalk, and he drew a perfect circle around it. That was just the start of his show.
2: Yeah, that's great. Yeah.
1: He had a huge crowd there, just mesmerized by doing that. Mm -hmm. Master Lee, I think, learned a lot from watching Philippe Petit, too if you watch the beginning of Master Lee's show, he'd do the same thing. He'd mesmerize a crowd, get all this focus without doing hardly anything. Right. And then uh, he juggled torches, and um, he got up on the rope, and he would walk on the rope. But everything he did was just so artistically done. A girl came over, gave him a flower uh-huh. in his show, balanced the flower on his nose, and he had the flower... Take a bow, you know, the flower would bend. Just little, little tiny things. His pantomime skills were exquisite. Right. And he was also good friends with Jeff Sheridan, too.
2: I don't know anything about Jeff Sheridan.
1: Jeff Sheridan was a street magician who David Copperfield used to watch. Jeff McBride used to watch him all the time. John Lennon used to bring him up to the Dakota. He used to do private shows for Sean way back in the 70s, maybe even late 60s. He was like probably the first street magician in New York City. In that time, late 60s, early 70s. Right.
2: There's
1: a book called Street Magic, and I think there's a photograph of him on the cover. And there's some stuff written in that book Street Magic on Jeff Sheridan. Not right. too much. He's worked at the Crazy Horse quite a bit over in Europe, and he's also worked uh, a place called Tiger Palace outside Frankfurt. Right. But very artistic, high-level, manipulative magic. Silent. Very unique. Nobody else like him. Right. Had this really artistic style, and... Philippe Petit also had the similarities. Uh, I think Philippe may have learned a lot from watching Jeff Sheridan. I would say he was inspired to be more artistic, but he was from Paris.
2: Yeah. yeah. So
1: he also had probably come up with French circuses and really artistic performances in, in Paris as well.
2: Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, there is the European scene is very different.
1: And then in Boulder, I remember seeing in the early days when I first got out to Boulder, there was a great group of guys, a duo called Dr. Hot and Neon.
2: Dr. Hot and Neon, who played you the remember ukuleles. them? I yeah. I've seen it once. Yeah. Oh, man.
1: Those fantastic. guys were fantastic. Neon yeah. from now on in his three-ball ballet. Yeah. Steve Mock was his name. Right. Yeah. And they were in Boulder? He was, fr- yes.
2: Uh uh-huh. And what, were they, they had big crowds?
1: They had big crowds, yeah. Bill right. was a funny guy. Steve was a very artistic juggler.
2: You're very artistic. A lot and we
1: shared things. in common, you know, they... they I don't
2: but, even know if their stuff would work nowadays, but... Um, but they
1: left and they went to Amsterdam. Right. And when I heard, I was thinking, like, damn, these guys are traveling in Amsterdam now, yeah. and if I get my street act together good enough, I'm going to be able to travel and go over to tr- see Europe. Right. This, I mean... Nowadays we take it for granted. You can go to see Europe, you can go take off and go street perform anywhere. Back then
2: Well, we take it for granted.
1: And there's a lot of people there's a lot of people who are street performers nowadays who take it for granted. Right. But it was a very risky move to take off and you know, you're going on a dream.
2: Right. Yeah.
1: That you're gonna be able to make money Mm. and survive. And Mm. what's gonna happen? You don't know.
2: Yeah, I mean, we have established a circuit now. Which
1: yeah, and then we've established people to contact over there. We would go over there back then. You don't know anybody. You're lucky if you knew somebody. That's why I was so lucky that I knew Cellini when he was in Switzerland. It was like, wow, you're in Switzerland now, right. dude. I want to come meet you, man. Will you show me some places to work and tell me some other places to go in uh, Europe to go, to go work? And he gave me the tips on uh, where to go in Europe. And
2: so, when you did, you did you you swallowed the swords in your street show? Yeah, yeah.
1: After doing the fire breathing and lighting my face on fire, right. I saw this guy swallow swords on the streets. One of the best sword swallowers I ever have seen still to this day. Right. And very few people know about him. He doesn't swallow swords anymore. His name was Rollick. Okay. His real name is Leo Greet, And he went by the name of Rollick Montebank. <laughs> and he was working with the Big John Strong Circus. Right. And this guy could blow fireballs massive he had this huge chest expansion and he would grow in front of an audience he'd come out like a little wimpy guy and he'd start puffing up his chest and breathing and he would grow into this huge man and then he'd and he had this big laugh and he would and he'd say you little boy come over here and he'd do the linking rings and he'd say, take these two unlinked rings, okay. separate rings, hold them in your hand and imagine a bar of steel going down your arm. You will not be able to let go of those rings until you hear me say the word now. Do you understand? He says, when you hear me say that word again, you'll be able to let go, but not until you hear me say that word again. And he'd go back and he'd link some rings. He'd say, okay, young man, go ahead, open your hand up, show him the rings are linked together. He'd say, open your hand. Come on. <laughs> yeah. And he'd say, the little boy would say, I can't. Yeah. I can't. And he'd say, ah, oh, ha, 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 ha. he can't open his hand. <laughs> now. And the little boy would jump and he'd open his hands and the crowd would freak. And would go, holy shit.
2: That's great. It was
1: amazing yeah. to yeah. see this guy work a crowd like that. A masterful, masterful street performer. But he was a sword swallower and he'd swell his sword and he'd say, oh, if you watch the handle, you can see the heartbeat oh. in the handle lub dub lub dub and then he would make the gestures then he would repeat it in spanish for all the spanish-speaking friends and he would say everything in spanish right i can end it with lub dub lub dub (laughs) but i remember seeing him and i saw him swallow swords i was thinking i bet i could swallow the sword i remember swallowing spaghetti and pulling it back out i remember sticking my finger down my throat So here's what happened. I started practicing sword swallowing, and after about two months, I'm starting to do it, and this is the following summer in Boulder, and I go back out, and I was doing a show, and I was so excited to do the show, and I told the people, I said, watch the handle, you can see the heartbeat in the handle, like an idiot. And his wife saw me, she was there, she saw me, Uh and she said, you scumbag, we thought you were a friend, and I felt so, so terrible. Uh I never did it again. It felt so bad that I had taken this person's material without asking. Yeah. And then the next year, I saw him, and I was out performing one day, and I probably made about two hundred fifty, three hundred bucks performing. And I went over to him and I said, "Hey, man, here's the money I made today." And I said, "I want you to have this. I don't want to think about this anymore." And I gave him all that money. Right. And he said, "Thank you, but thank you more for not doing my material." And he says, and I want you to know, this money you're giving me, I'm going to give it to these people down in El Salvador to help them. Because he was doing a lot of work helping people down in that's El Salvador. That's
2: beautiful. That's really, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really lovely story. Actually. That's, yeah.
1: He was a straight up guy who really uh, cared a lot about helping people. Rollick. Rollick Montebank. <laughs> I think he lives in <laughs> New Mexico. And I've heard that he's done some radio announcing or DJ work. Great talker and uh very interesting yeah. guy.
2: yeah. So, that was the last time you ever stole any material?
1: Um, stolen material. Slip a line in. You know, you hear, I, <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: what makes a line a stock line? Right. When does something become stock? Yeah. People start to do some line, and then someone takes, and someone says, well, I've heard three other people do that line. Uh huh. Why can't I do it? The first person who did it, who came up with it, who was writing it, or who may have hired a writer to help him write well, it. Or
2: simply might have just come up with it, literally on the spur of the moment.
1: And also, sometimes people do come up with the same joke, and, but there's plenty of liars out there. Oh, I came up with that on my own, too. Oh, yeah. and I've run into people that are like that again and again, consistently say, oh, oh I came up with that, too, yeah. again and again. And it's like, yeah, hey, wait a second. No, I don't know. No. Like Gazzo has taken so many lines that have been, other people have done, but he's adapted them to himself and he's changed them around so that they fit him. And that's another part of appropriating material. If you change the material enough, still I think it's important to, well, for people all have to respect to be influenced.
2: the influenced. I mean, there's, you can't. I mean, we, you know, people say there is no original material.
1: They say there's no original yeah, material. So no now original. I have a license to take whatever I want. Yeah,
2: it's not. I mean,
1: it's, yeah. But, I don't know what to say. Well, I'll never forget Melvin Burkhart, the man who came up with the hammer and the spike in the nose. Okay. I asked him one time, I said, Melvin, how does it make you feel when you see somebody and they're doing your lines verbatim? Yeah. And he said to me, he said, Johnny, he says, you know what? He says, I can only hope that they learn to do them in their own style. And as long as they're making people laugh, that's what's important. As right. long as they're spreading laughter and happiness to people that's what's important
2: well how do you feel when you find yeah. people doing your material because people do
1: well I have approached people I heckled somebody one time I saw somebody doing some lines in my show and I screamed from the audience at one point I couldn't take it anymore I said yeah why don't you show them how your Adam's apple wobbles back and forth too <laughs> and the guy who looks up and he hears me and he says oh yeah and if you watch the Adam's apple here's another line I got from Johnny Fox <laughs> Bastard. But but as you know, you know, for Sorry. me, I say, okay, what would a sword swallow? How does a sword swallower look? How does a sword swallow And I remember seeing a sword swallower when I was a kid, and it's like there's got to be some kind of flare. And what do you do for flare with it? And so you know, I would snap my fingers and let it drop. I would snap my fingers and make this gesture, and then I see somebody else doing that same gesture, and I go, well. I don't know. It just seems like a natural thing to do. I'm not the first person to ever do that. I've never saw anybody else do it, but it wouldn't surprise me if 200 years ago there was sword swallowers that did the same thing. I got the idea that I wanted to throw the sword up in the air and step away and let the sword hit the stage and stick right in. Right. And...
2: I could imagine other people doing that. Yeah, like you say, too. I've never seen it, though. I've never seen it, no, but... I can
1: imagine that because, I mean, people believe that there's a button in the handle. You have to push the button to make the sword lock in place. The people think it's it's liquid mercury or something like magic kind of metal that you have that you can touch a button and the blade just melts into the handle.
2: Not only that, it, I've been in crowds where somebody's telling their husband or their wife exactly how that trick is done and it's pure fantasy, you know. You think, Really? i only we'd have come up with that you know but but that's why i also started swallowing different objects that i can
1: swallow like a giant spoon and yeah. a giant screwdriver and i mean coat hangers have been around for a long time so i look for a nice chromed coat hanger right. neon swords people told me they said don't ever swallow a neon sword because too many people died back in the 40s and 50s and 60s swallowing neon swords
0: yeah. i said ah oh
1: you're talking about the light bulbs yeah. just like yeah yeah so yeah. I started swallowing neon swords but I researched it I did a lot of research on it and talked to neon sign makers and we did it
2: well I should imagine the technology has changed over the years as well exactly so.
1: technology has changed the glass has improved mm. thicker smaller gauge glass and reinforcing it but still people do cut themselves people still die from sword swallowing right and yeah. people don't realize that you cut yourself in the esophagus and you can fill your lungs with blood and you died pretty quick there was a guy uh, Greg Schaffner was his name in Denver he saw me swallowing swords he was inspired to swallow swords but he uh, swallowed a dipstick from his Corvette he had inherited some money I think and he was taking his girlfriend to Hawaii and someone said uh, hey to show him how you swallow a sword he pulls a dipstick out of his uh, Corvette and wiped it off with Jack Daniels, swallowed it, scratched his esophagus, got a staph infection that went up against his spine, he was paralyzed from the tits down, and he went blind in both eyes. And they cut him open, they cleaned him out, and he got his mobility back, he got his eyesight back, 70% in one eye, and I think the other eye was uh, okay, but uh, one of his eyes is still pretty messed up. But he was lucky he didn't die.
2: Yeah, right. It's horrible.
1: And, yeah, every year I get calls from people. Now that there's more people swallowing swords, people say, hey, you know, what do I do? I uh, think I'm cutting I have no inside. interest
2: in learning how whatsoever. I'm sorry. I, think, I love watching you. It it's there, amazing how just,
1: many people have started uh, swallowing swords amazing. nowadays. I mean, for the first 12 years I was working Renaissance Festivals, I was the only one swallowing yeah. swords. Yeah. And I'm kind of glad that there wasn't a lot of other sword swallowers around, so I wasn't really inspired. Or I didn't have to hear what this person was doing, that person was doing. And Right. and it's, it's a great and well, we were talking about that other stuff with the appropriating material and the, the balloon the another yeah bit? the balloon of course has to come up because yeah i started doing the balloon in 82
2: we well hold on let's clarify because it's a classic now it really is the balloon yeah going so down it's and
1: it's gotten to the point where balloon. it's public domain yes so many people do that because after so many people have taken it and then people go on and they expose it and they make videos of it and uh, teach it and it's wrong. I mean... You were the first person to do that? I started doing it. I had not seen anybody do it except Kevin Hunt who was with the Flaming Idiots. Yes,
2: yes, yes, yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Kevin and I were doing it and I think there may have been one other person doing it back then. Right. So
2: you came up with it or Kevin came up with it?
1: I was doing it on my own before I met Kevin. Yeah. And I said, Kevin, I'm doing that too. Right. Show me what you're doing, I'll show you what I'm doing. Yeah. We started crossing notes and helping each other out doing it. Yeah. And I think he may have taught a couple other people about it. And people started passing it around and doing it and it was like Oh, God. there's nothing you can do. People are gonna do it, they're gonna do it. People are just gonna take it. And then people think that's you know, standard, I can take that. Right. Nobody asks.
2: No, nobody at all. No, I mean, that is one of the classic, you know, if you're going to make a career out of stock material, that's one of the gags that you're going to use. No, they do. They do. Bastards. (laughs) I'll be in the audience heckling them, too. (laughs) Yeah, quite right, too.
1: There's a lot of people that do the bit. They're not sword swallowers. No, not
2: at all. But,
1: you know, I feel like when I do it, that I'll do it better than anybody else out there.
2: Right. Yeah. Well,
1: it's yours. So, so. So, Yeah. and I think it's so recognizable that when I do that that anybody else that's going to do it I'll shut them down (laughs) I'll come perform right next to you let me show you how that bit should have been done (laughs) someone was telling me that about Cardini the famous manipulator Uh so many people knocked off his act he'd go and do auditions at Radio City Music Hall and he'd come off stage and there'd be someone saying to him let me show you how that act should be done.
2: <laughs> I think that, that happens so often, I think, yeah. now. I mean, yeah.
1: Well, there was this guy in Washington Square, Albert Owen.
2: Oh, Albert. Yes, I know, you know Albert. Albert. Or I knew Albert. He you know. came over to London. He's died, unfortunately. He died over there? No, he didn't die over there. I think he died in, in the States. He was fantastic.
1: Albert would do a show and he would write material in between shows. He'd go out there and try the joke and the joke would work maybe like 50%. He didn't have it down and then Charlie Barnett would hear it and Charlie would say, Albert, let me show you how to do that joke. And Charlie would take (laughs) Albert's jokes that he had written that day and go out there and kill with them. But Charlie had this amazing rubber face and attitude that he could sell ice
2: cubes to Eskimos, yeah, which is really what makes it work. You must have seen the two of them working in Washington Square Park. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which one did you think was funnier?
1: Oh, no question about it, Charlie. Really, Charlie. Yeah. Charlie would have been a huge star on Saturday Night Live with Eddie Murphy. They ah. both auditioned for the same part, but yeah. Charlie couldn't read the cue cards, so they gave the job to Eddie. Okay, but Charlie was hysterical. Because he broke himself in on the streets. Right. He was fearless. And he was great on stage. And he was more like a, a trained actor. It's like it's like Robin Williams was a Juilliard student. Yeah. But he used to street perform too. A lot of people right. don't know that about Robin Williams, but Robin Williams was a street performer. He was a busker.
2: Yeah. No, I think, I think the community we're talking to know that. But,
1: yeah. Tony Vera had left and gone to uh, Venice Beach. Right. What happened to Tony Vera? Is he still out there? Tony. Fireman. Yeah, so it, drawing a circle in the square. You know the book, Drawing a Circle in the Square? Yeah. Yeah, Tony
2: Vera is the star of that book. He was the king of the park. You just went to Edinburgh. and um, yes. You've never been to Edinburgh before. Right. And I don't know if you notice this, there are people that work a formula. And it seems to me that this formula has become... Well, we talked about it with silver, and it was like painting by numbers and you literally well this is what i do first this is what i do second and this you know i gather a crowd like this which traditionally used to be done with a whistle or nowadays it tends to be done with whips and then i'm going to do a trick and then i'm going to up a pole and i'm going to do this people are not just not taking any risks anymore and there's no artistic spirit
1: yeah I was an education performing in uh edinburgh at the fringe festival seeing how people are street performing and now and how to work that size of a crowd in the competition the way it is Were there there got any to start accent? off with some the, laughs
2: that you liked in particular
1: there was this girl kate the great who was very strong in the streets i was very impressed to see a woman handle herself solo performer right it's like wow this girl's fearless
2: now i just worked with kate up in waterloo it
1: is a of fun. Yeah, and uh, seeing Brian from uh, London... Uh, oh, Brian, yes. He cracked me up. It was great yeah. to see uh, him doing uh, There are some other performers out there that, and people that look new and refreshing. Um, yeah, it, it bothered me for years. There was a group started Renaissance Festivals years ago called Sack Theatre, okay. and they were the ones who started the whole thing about everybody do this, everybody do that. And then the whole crowd went, oh. And everybody went, ooh. And everybody went, ah. Oh. Everybody on this side, ooh. Everybody on this side, ah. Oh. And I would hear, and after hearing a half a dozen people appropriate that, it just made me go, ugh. You know, that, another one of that, oh, another person doing the oohs and ahs. Uh, and I swore off it. I said, I don't want to ever do this. I don't bring assistants up. I was like, I don't want to do a show with an assistant. You know, I feel like the people are there, they want to see a a professional show, give them a show. Don't make the people do the show, you know. But then I started thinking about, you know, if the people are really enjoying the doing the ooh and the ah, and it gets the community into it, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't know, it's just my own personal taste after seeing it done so much. And people don't even realize where it comes from, you know. They don't even know that, you know, SAC Theater left Renaissance Festivals and Disney hired them. They ended up working for Disney. Yeah. But they had like four or five different shows that they would do. They did Romeo and Juliet. They did the Big Bear show. One of the more brilliant... They got booked on a stage at the Texas Renaissance Festival one year. That was, They had an early morning show that was at the crown stage. It was really hard to get a crowd down there. Never right. forget... This one guy would go up in the morning and he had a big long rope and one of the ends of the rope had a monkey's fist tied onto it. You know what a monkey's fist is where you weave the rope a certain way and it makes a big ball? Yes, I do. And he would go up to people at the front gate as they were coming in the front gate and he would take the line that didn't have the monkey fist on it and he would stick it through men's belt loops. Right. And he would get about 100 people on this rope and they couldn't get off of it. (laughs) he'd say everybody follow me we're going to a show you're stuck on the rope you're going to a show you can't change now and he would pull this whole crowd of people that's how he got his first show that's
2: fantastic that's really good because even if they're not going to stay afterwards everybody else who's watched them come over is going to watch it's yeah that's great
1: yeah i'm not taking no for an answer there's so many different ways to gather a crowd yeah there
2: really are.
1: yeah i think i'll next time i go to edinburgh i'll bring a big rope with me maybe bring that back i haven't seen that done in ages
2: you think you're gonna to go to edinburgh again yeah.
1: you know what i think I, I really want to do after seeing edinburgh i've heard of uh, the storytelling festivals because i feel right. like that's what i'm really drawn to more is the storytelling telling stories yeah. stories from my life that are true stories how i the, the is that influenced me and got me into this and meeting people like slidini and cellini and Seeing my first sideshow as a kid, and
2: when did you see your first sideshow as a kid?
1: Um, late fifties, early sixties. I was like maybe six or seven, yeah, five, six, seven years old. I saw a giant, and I begged my dad to buy me one of the souvenir giant rings, and I kept that giant ring. Who was the giant? He claimed to be eight foot eight. I think he was seven foot eleven. Right. Okay. And still big. Johan Pedersen was his name, from Reykjavik, Iceland. Uh-huh. And he had a talker that was out there telling the people how he had eaten for breakfast two dozen eggs, five pounds of ham, two loaves of bread. Meanwhile, he's sitting on at a, at a big throne in the back of the stage. And the stage was a riser about five feet off the ground. And I was standing up in the front with my dad and brother. And he stood up from his chair and just started walking towards the front. And he just kept getting bigger and bigger. And my head went way back and a woman came out handed him a platter with chicken legs a mound of chicken legs and he was taking the chicken legs and putting them in his mouth and pulling all the meat off in one bite and he was eating them one after another I was just dumbfounded and my brother was there and a little dwarf came out from the side of the stage I'll never forget and I thought I embellished the story and made the story up myself or dreamed it up but what happened is the dwarf came over he looked up at him he said, Mr Giant, you're eating too much. Save some for me. And Johan took off his helmet. He had this big conical helmet with wings coming out of the sides of it. He covered the dwarf. The helmet went down to the dwarf's knees and the dwarf went off stage, turned, and did these like you know, little tiny steps off stage. Years later I was working in uh Sarasota, Florida at the medieval fair. I did twenty one years there. That fair ran for I think twenty two or twenty three years. But I think I did all of them except for the first year and Melvin Burkhardt used to come out, and I used to get comp tickets and give them to all the sideshow people in that area. Because right. I'd stay around there, and I'd hang out with these people, and I'd cut their grass, and I just wanted to hear their stories. But one year, I was down there, and someone said to me, you see that lady over there? Her name's Barbara. She used to make the costumes for Johan the Viking Giant. You ought to go introduce yourself. And I went right over, and I told her about my memory as a kid, seeing Johan put the helmet on this little dwarf and run off stage. And I said did that happen or am I just, have I made this story up in my head? And she looked at me and she said, young man, you're very lucky. He only did that routine for one season and that little man's name was Walter Boning. Wow. So I got to see that and I was thinking, holy cow. And I still had that giant ring from when I was a kid. So sharing those stories with people and seeing, you know, other sideshow freaks. These were my superheroes as a kid because my friends were reading comic books and I didn't get comic books. I didn't understand fiction and cartoons, and I said, why would anybody be interested in that? I want, or, And I said, tell my dad, I want a real superhero. Okay. And he gave me a book about Houdini. No jail cell could hold him. Here's a real superhero. Right. And then I found out he was dead, and I said, Dad, he's dead. I want a real superhero who's alive. And he said, I don't know what to tell you. And we were at the sideshow. We went to the state fair, and we walked by the sideshow, and I saw those banners that said, Alive, Tallest Man on Earth, yeah. Reykjavik, Iceland, Johan Pedersen, the Viking Giant, Another one said, Alive, the monkey girl, Alive, alligator boy, Alive, lobster boy. I say, How could this be? How, how can it be live superheroes? And it was the freak show. And for me, these people's courage standing in front of people saying, This is who I am. Right. I'm comfortable with who I am. I'm smiling. And they might be disformed. They might be human anomalies. But their bravery and their fearlessness, that was what was really about being yeah. a superhero for me. So the stories, people hear them and it, it, it helps people deal with fearlessness, being fearless, and which is so important because I f- firmly believe that love and fear are opposites. And if we are loving beings and we're here to spread love,
2: mm-hmm.
1: it's important to teach people how to be fearless or to pass on fearlessness and to share these characters who came from really hard places and they had to learn acceptance, which is what it is, is acceptance. Yes. Accept the fact that you're different, that you're weird, that you're
2: ugly, that you're...
1: But you're not ugly. It's in the heart, you know. It's The beauty's well, in the so heart. So how
2: do you feel about, like, the more man-made freaks, like the people that tattoo themselves so much into... The people that turn themselves into freaks? Some people, I...
1: Respect, and they've done it with passion, like Lucky Diamond Rich.
2: Right,
1: he's done it and never looked back, and he's done it with passion. It's a fantastic street performer. Yeah, I watched him work Washington Square, and I think he ended up getting like, I don't know, it was like four or five hundred dollar tips in the half. Oh
2: Jesus! Never yeah. seen
1: anybody get. F-
2: yeah, that first m- act, I mean, I remember multiple he-
1: hundred dollar tips.
2: Yeah, people talking about him at Covent Garden, and this was when he was Richie, before he was Lucky. Richie Rich, yeah. Yeah, and. I'd heard about him and I just didn't believe it till I saw it. I mean Pepe was doing big shows and maybe getting like two hundred pounds. Richie comes on the pitch. I've never seen a crowd so big. It was like right, right up it was actually underneath the Punch and Judy balcony. And Was he tattooed then? Hardly any. Not that much. I mean he was tattooed, but not I mean you could see his face. It's before he had anything on like his face. Back then he was doing 500-pound shows, and that was unheard of back then.
1: It wasn't because he was tattooed?
2: No, it wasn't. And then as he became more tattooed, it became harder to talk to him in some ways, uh, but he was still the humble and the, like the sweet guy.
1: What do, you, but what
2: do you attribute that to? Why do you think his hats were so huge? People just wanted to watch it. If you actually knew exactly what it was, he'd be making a fortune, everybody would be. I mean, if you could actually, like say, this is it, this is exactly what he does, then, I mean, come on. You'd know, be making a fortune, Yeah. Can you yeah. attribute what it was?
1: Well, it's the ability to go out there and turn on that switch. You turn on that switch right at the start of the show and have the presence and the awareness to connect with everyone who's watching you. Yeah. And the way people breathe, the way they hold themselves, their confidence, the way that they deliver their lines. But he also does a six-foot uni, right?
2: It was 12 foot. 12 foot. Yeah. But that was that didn't really matter.
1: What do you mean it didn't matter? Then it, why it wouldn't he do a six-foot?
2: It it didn't matter. Because, <laughs> I'll tell you why it didn't matter. Because he had the crowd before he even bought it out, really. Right. I've seen other people with 12-foot unicycles fail miserably. A 12-foot unicycle is a 12-foot unicycle. Big deal. But... It was his presence.
1: Here's something that I wonder about. My friend Ray was an amazing falconer. Yeah. I love hanging out with him. I was talking to him about Cellini the other day. We were talking about how I have this painting that Cellini started painting. He was good friends with this guy, Noel Rockmore in New Orleans. And Noel was from a family of fine artists. Right. And Cellini would learn painting from him. And he started painting a lot. as type of therapy and He had all these paintings. He says, I want to give you a painting. Pick a painting. And I pulled this one painting out. And it was a painting. It was blue and grays. And it had some water running down. It was like a shower scene. And it was a woman holding fabric or something. It looked like this long hose over her shoulder. I asked him what it was. I said, I really like this painting. There's something about it that just seems so powerful. And he said, you really want that painting? I said, yeah. I said, can you tell me about it? He said, when I was a kid, I grew up as an orphan. My parents left me and my brother and sister. He says, they couldn't raise us, so they gave us up to adoption. I grew up in an orphanage. These nuns used to beat us. He said, I'd cry for my parents, and then I'd keep crying, and the nuns would say, shut up, stop your crying, and I'll give you something to cry about. And they'd put him in a shower In the shower at some night, they put the water on really hot or really cold. He says, that which is over her shoulder, that's a towel. And they would beat me with a wet towel. And as I was telling my friend Ray the story, he started getting all teary-eyed. He said, I was there too. He said, I was an orphan raised by nuns. And I started thinking about my life and seeing a lot of pain in my life growing up parents being divorced. My father left us. I was about eight or nine at the time. And growing up, my mother raising us and not being around. And, uh, you know, it's like learn to take care of yourself at a young age. I think Lucky had that same thing going for him. A lot of people that have really good chops and sense of that confidence. That's a common thread that I see numerous times. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I go and I do shows. I did a free show Recently, for a school, these reform school kids in Connecticut. And these are kids that their life is at that point where they're looking for something to do and they don't know what to do. And they're one step away to go being uh, institutionalized into juvenile prisons. And I tell these kids, I say, look, you know, I've been doing this for all these years and I know where you are. And I know because I've been there and I knew that I had to get out of here. I left... Connecticut. As soon as I got out of Connecticut in high school, I left right away. They told me I had to finish a senior year again. I had to repeat my senior year of high school. They said you don't going to get your high school diploma. I said you keep the high school diploma. I'm leaving. I'm out of here. And I went to San Francisco. I never got a high school diploma. Mm-hmm. did not bother me at all. I'm still grateful for the education I got. But I knew that it was time to leave. When I left Florida. And the same thing in Hartford, too, when I got out of high school. I had friends that were drinking so much, they would drink constantly, and they became alcoholics. And I knew I had to get away from that, or I would be one, too. And when I left Florida, it was the same thing. My friends, I could tell you what stool they were sitting on, at what pub, at what time of night. Most of them are dead now. Mm. So many of them are, are gone. They've Their health just went down. They'd sit there and they'd wallow in their stories of their past and they'd just be depressed at probably growing up and having a broken family. And what do I do? drink. They want to forget about that. People have addictions. So they drink or they have some other addiction or they just want to have sex or they just want to eat. That's why I'm very grateful for Buddhism and Hinduism, teaching, learning meditation and learning yoga has helped me so much in my life to accept and so if those things can be passed on to other people that are at times in their life where they where they need help. I you know, street performing well, has responsibilities that go along with it too.
2: That are you saying that street performing is like yoga?
1: In some ways. It's therapy and it's therapy for the community too. I'm sure Lucky Rich has inspired many kids who were not knowing what to do with their life, or, you know, to give them an inspiration to do something. What makes a person pick up a guitar and sit down with a guitar and just play the same riff over and over again until they get it just right, and then to play it in a style that suits them? I mean, you look at Ron Woods or Keith Richards, and I'm sure they had inspirations like Chuck Berry. And,
2: well, yeah, I think we know that.
1: Yeah, yeah, everybody knows that. But what gets those guys to the point where they had their style? They were so passionate that they would sit there with a guitar all day, playing the same riff again and again and again, until they had it. What made you want to learn
2: the coin star?
1: If you read the description, and there's a there's a book called Greater Magic, Yeah. it's like the Bible of magicians from back in the 50s and 60s, the description of the coin star, the one-hand coin star, says it's nearly impossible. Cellini didn't roll coins when I met him. Cellini didn't do the coin star when I met him. Cellini didn't do the cigarette-tongue act when I met him. Those are all things that I inspired him to do. I felt very honored and privileged that I was able to inspire my teacher to do those things. I was also very sad when I saw him write it up in a book without informing me before or without asking me if I minded. And then I would see people on the streets doing cups and balls, doing lines of mine. And I was thinking, who is this person that's doing these lines in mine? I've never seen this person before. And it was some people that Cellini had taught the routine to. Right. And there was lines that I threw away that Cellini picked up. I used to do this line. We'll call the cups A, B, C. Oh, okay. C, B, A, A, B, C. One, two, three. There's no D cups or E cups. Only three cups. And I heard someone say that one time. I was like, I wrote that. And I stopped saying it and I replaced it with something else. But where did they get it? They had to see Cellini do it. I remember seeing Gazzo. I went to New Orleans one time to street perform Yeah. in the early 80s. And I look up and I see somebody dressed like me with pouches and it's Gazzo.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And I'm thinking, how can this person be doing this? And I'm thinking, he had to have seen Cellini. And I went over and I introduced myself And he says, no, I didn't see Cellini. I've never seen Cellini before. It was a blatant lie. Uh Because Jerry Sutterwitz said, what are you talking about? You used to watch Cellini again and again. You're a fucking liar, Gazzo. But still, he doesn't like to come clean. No, Doc Shields. I never saw it. (laughs) What are you talking about, Gazzo? And then, you know, I was still, you know, I've always been nice to Gazzo. And he took lines out of my act. And then I finally just got to the point where I said, you know what? if this is the way you want to play this game okay I'll just help myself to pick a few from you and I don't really like doing things that way well,
2: but I've watched you do Cups and Bulls and I've watched Gazzo do Cups and Bulls I mean I've worked with both of you right next to both of you loads of times and it's so different but yeah I've also watched people try and do Gazzo and just think why the fuck are you trying to do that you just you like some hip squeak little boy going it just doesn't work for you it's just... and yeah. i've seen people trying to do exactly the same with you as well i've, I've seen exactly the same and it, they just don't have the character or the depth of character to do it it's...
1: yeah that's what comes from doing it over and over and over and do it we used to do this let's go out and do a show at 10 o'clock at night even though we know there was only going to be about maybe 10 people at most to do the show for right. let's do the show for those people. Yeah. Listen, that's an honor and a privilege to have a job making people laugh and smile and look confused. I want to take a minute to introduce myself. My name is Johnny Fox. It's a stage name, of course. My real name is John Fox. When I work in Mexico, it's Juanito Zorro. It's true. John Fox is my real name. And uh, growing up and finding out Zorro, you know, is Fox in Spanish, and I thought it was kind of cool. He had swords and the man dressed in black and all those things. They all come together in funny ways. Everybody's got their own story. This is 35 years from me here at the Maryland Renaissance Festival, number 35. Only 15 more to go.
2: So, Mr Fox, is there any final words of wisdom that you'd like to give to the street performing community in general?
1: Well, I was going to say... Don't follow in Gazzo's footsteps and sell your routine and create a rash of mediocre performers. But you know what? Those performers, the ones that are good, they will get better. And that's a good thing because the world needs more entertainment. Spread more laughter, spread more love, and be passionate. Aww.
0: Stories from the Pitch is produced by the Busker Hall of Fame and is made possible through the efforts of a dedicated team who share a passion for the recording, editing, and presenting of these interviews. If you'd like to support what we're doing, please do consider swinging by the Busker Hall of Fame website and throwing a little love into our online hat by clicking on the donate button or become a sustaining supporter of the project at patreon.com slash buskerstories. Your contributions really do allow us to grow this resource and generate more content, so thanks in advance for supporting this project and helping us keep busking history alive. Music for this podcast came from 357 Lover. Links to both songs are available in the notes section of this episode on the Busker Hall of Fame website. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Simply go to your favorite app, type in stories from the pitch, and download away. If you're accessing this content via iTunes, we'd love it if you could take a moment to leave us a review and give us a five-star rating. It'll take you just a minute or two, and it means the world to our production team. Got a story to tell? Something you think we could improve? A performer you'd like us to interview? Or perhaps you're interested in becoming a sponsor of an upcoming episode? If so, drop me a line at cbg at buskerhalloffame.com. Haven't gotten enough Buskerhoff content yet? Well, then check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash buskerhalloffame. Follow us on Twitter, SoundCloud, and YouTube, or sign up for our newsletter. Links to all of these can be found on the Busker Hall of Fame website on the right-hand side of the page. And to close, after all the talk about stealing material, we wanted to leave you with one final thought from Johnny and some advice that we can all benefit from.
1: Encourage other performers to come up with new material. Think of new presentations and take a risk and go out and try it. And maybe you won't work Great the first time, or the second time, or the third time, and then it starts to get refined a little bit, and then you have something that's more uniquely yours. And
2: you're saying you want to see people take risks, and when I mean, how would you like to see people do? Yeah, take risks and look up old
1: books of vaudeville, variety acts from the past, and look for things that are really obscure, or try to blend a couple of things together and paint a different picture.
0: On behalf of myself, story editor Magic Brian, Guy Collins, who captured this interview, and the rest of the staff of the Busker Hall of Fame, we hope this finds you well. And as you perform for audiences around the world, please remember to use your superpowers for good. I'm David Aiken, the Checkerboard Guy. Thanks for listening.
1: There has to be a human sacrifice if you want to be a legend, folks.